morning. My name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And everybody in this room is aware that any time somebody visits a church for the first time, there's a degree of discomfort involved in that. And really grateful that you overcame that, decided to be, be with us this morning. Also, I don't want to miss the opportunity to, to wish the fathers here a, a happy Father's Day. Um, I have memories of first coming to this church about two and a half years ago. Kim and I arrived, sat right down there, and as we began to wade into this community, we just began to realize, you know, the, the men of this church that are fathers take that role very seriously. And I want to tell you how much I think it pleases God that you are characterized that way and how much it blesses your family and also how much it builds this local church that you have a commitment to, to raise your family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So I just want to thank God for you and thank God for your example and wish you this morning a very happy Father's Day. If you're a guest, uh, is a gr- this is a really good time to get involved because we've got some exciting things going on this summer as a community, as a church community. Also, what we're doing on Sunday mornings is we're going through a series that is titled Truth Matters. And the purpose of this series is to outline for the church a statement of faith that the church is considering adopting. The the elders of the church have put forward a new statement of faith, which is the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. It's been adopted by hundreds and hundreds of churches throughout this nation, other nations of the world as, as well. And uh, we're going through each article of the Statement of Faith. We've been through three already. And this morning we're going to do the fourth article of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, which is on the fall. And so I'm going to begin by just reading this, this article, article number four, which is titled The Fall, and that'll give you a sense of what we're going to talk about this morning. So this is how it begins. We believe that Adam made in the image of God, distorted that image, and forfeited his original blessedness for himself and all his progeny by falling into sin through Satan's temptation. As a result, all human beings are alienated from God, corrupted in every aspect of their being, physically, mentally, volitionally, that means by our will, emotionally, spiritually, and condemned finally and irrevocably to death, apart from God's own gracious intervention. The supreme need of all human beings is to be reconciled to God, under whose just and holy wrath we stand. The only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God, who alone can rescue us and restore us to Himself. Now, an article in in any statement of faith can be a profound thing, it can be a helpful thing, but it's an irrelevant thing unless it is grounded upon the Word of God. And so what I want to do right now is to turn to the primary section of the Word of God in which this statement is pulled, and that's Genesis chapter 3. We're turning now to a far more important piece of writing than any other statement of faith, and that is the Word of God itself, Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read the first seven verses. The message this morning is titled, Truth Matters, God Promising. God 
promising. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, tree, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's just let's stop right there and let's pray and let's ask God for his help. Lord, we come before you today in need of you, in need of your blessing, in need of your word, in need of the inspiration that can only come from your Holy Spirit. And yet we come to you today believing that you are poised to bless us. That you're not up in heaven right now reluctant to, to pour out and give us what we need, but that you are leaning toward us because of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray as a people that you would help us to understand this passage and help us to understand the claim that this article makes upon our local church. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a question that lies near the heart of Christianity. The answer to which reveals one's grasp of grace and one's take on what's really wrong with the world. It is a question that every Christian must answer. In fact, it is a question that the Article 4 that we just read in the Gospel Coalition of Statement of Faith answered. And that question is, when the events of Genesis 3 took place, how far did we fall? How far did we fall? Maybe an even better way of asking that question is to ask, how did the fall affect our ability to choose God? How did it affect our will to choose God? Now, some believe that the fall was kind of like a stumble. And that's not to minimize stumbles. Stumbles can be very serious. Stumbles can be bad. Kim recently stumbled. My wife recently stumbled and twisted her knee. She limped for weeks, had to go to the doctor. So some believe that sin stumbles us. In other words, it substantially slows our ability to move toward God and ultimately puts us in a position where we need something outside of ourselves. We need a kind of doctor to help solve our problems. Well, there are others that believe that the fall was worse than that, that the fall crippled us. The fall rendered us virtually unable to walk. 
We're still alive, but we're paralyzed. And we're, we're unable to help ourselves. We're like that dude, the, the paralyzed guy in John chapter 5 at the pool of Bethesda. He can crawl to the water's edge. He can help himself to the water's edge. But he needs something outside of himself to stir the waters of healing, to stir the waters of salvation so that he could ultimately enjoy the gift of God. And still others, including those that wrote the statement that I just read, statement four of the Gospel Coalition article, believe that the fall killed us spiritually. It killed us. It rendered us totally unable to vote for God, to choose God on our own. That Adam's disobedience caused not a spiritual stumbling, not a spiritual crippling, but a spiritual fatality. That we were all KIA in Eden. We were all killed in action through what Adam did. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to unravel what that really means. But I think just to begin with, we have to agree together that Genesis 3, after the glory of creation and the glory of creating man and woman and the glory of Eden, that Genesis 3 opens with some pretty bad news. This is pretty bad news. You know, I read an article recently about a guy named John Daly, who was the CBS correspondent who was on duty the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed by Japan. I mean, this is a guy, he walks into work one day, and he is handed a message that Pearl Harbor was bombed, and that he was the person selected to deliver this news to the United States. And he's the guy that kind of coined the phrase that we interrupt this program with a special news bulletin. And when John Daly died, at his death in 1991, he was commemorated as having to deliver some of the worst news in U.S. history. That's pretty bad, having to deliver that news. But Genesis 3 takes us to a far more horrific moment in history. In fact, one that we could argue, Pearl Harbor, 9-11, all of the other dates where bad news was announced in the history of man, they all find their origin in this special bulletin. And that is the report from Scripture, of sin's arrival. It is the report of the fall. And so what I want to do together is I want to look more closely at what it really means that Adam fell, that Adam fell to spiritual death. Because that's going to help us understand ultimately what this article means and why this particular article, number four, was written in the way that it was. So what does spiritual death mean? I've got three points I want to cover with you. First, spiritual death means God's image distorted. Secondly, spiritual death means our souls corrupted. Thirdly, spiritual death means God's love revealed. So let's let's just go back to the top and let's look at the first point, God's image distorted and go back into these beginning chapters of of Genesis. So we know, if you're even vaguely familiar with Genesis, that, that the living God launches history in the role of the Creator. He executes His will in this spectacular fashion, all of it culminating in the in the apex of His creation, which was the creation of the man and the woman. 
In fact, it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God then created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times the word created is used, by the way. And that's there intentionally. Hebrew word, bara. It's there intentionally so that we understand that something significant has happened now in creation. Remember that God has already created the light and the darkness. He's already created the heavens and the earth, the animal and the fish. All of that has been done, but now comes the crowning achievement of God's activity in the creation narrative. And yet there's one thing that he sets upon this aspect of creation that is distinctly different than everything else that he's done thus far. This exceptional feature sets them apart from everything done thus far. And them and them alone have this feature, and that is that they were, quote, made in the image of God. Now, made in God's image means, I mean, it means basically what it says. It means that we were created in His likeness, that we are in some strange, mysterious fashion a snapshot of God, and that as we live life, we image forth something about Him. We, we represent Him in some way, which then is what we see Adam doing in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 after he was created. So we see Adam doing these things in the garden. In other words, he works in the garden because he's imaging forth the Creator who labored for six days. He creates because he bears the likeness of a Creator. He names the animals because he reflects the dominion of a ruler. He communicates because he was made like one who announces his existence by saying, let there be light. He announces his existence through creation. Adam aches for community. Remember, it's not good for man to be alone. He aches for community because his very being mirrors the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist eternally in fellowship, in community, in unity, in harmony, in congruity with one another. But here's where it gets really interesting. When that first couple failed in Genesis chapter 3, there was a distortion that came over this glorious image that they were created in. In fact, this is how it reads in the fourth article of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. We believe that Adam, made in the image of God, distorted that image and forfeited his original blessedness. Now, this is where words are really important. Note the fact that it uses the word distorted. Not destroyed, distorted, marred, defaced, defiled. You know, less than two years ago, there were a group of vandals that defaced the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, these idiots took, took green paint and threw it across the Lincoln Memorial. So the image of Abraham Lincoln, well, that, the image certainly remained engraved upon the statue, but it was tarnished. It was distorted, not destroyed. The image of Lincoln remained, but was tarnished. It was distorted, not destroyed. So there's some way that the image of God in man was 
distorted in the fall. And here's a real simple way that I want to tell you what happened that I hope we'll remember. Maybe it'll provide a little hook for you to remember what it is that took place. And that is that in the fall, God's likeness, God's likeness remained intact. Likeness intact, heart spoiled. God's likeness remained intact in the fall. Our hearts were spoiled. Likeness intact, hearts spoiled. Well, let me describe for you what I mean by that more specifically so you can see where I'm going. And, and what I want to do in doing that is I just want to look a little bit deeper into Genesis and just see how this fall began to play out as Genesis marched on. So Genesis chapter 5 and chapter 6 actually display for us how this starts to play out in creation. Let me begin with Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. This is, uh, this is Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So we see the language from Genesis chapter 1 is being pulled forward and imported and set down in Genesis chapter 5. And he blessed them and then named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, check this out, in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So part of what we're seeing here is that the image of God remains intact. We see the likeness remains unbroken from God to Adam, Adam to Seth. The likeness is affected by the fall, but not lost by the fall. Because man is still creating. Man is still communicating. Man is living in community. The likeness of God remains intact. But but there's a sense where the true impact of the fall is felt in a whole different arena. It's felt underneath the surface in a more significant way because the depravity of man is rapidly unfolding now, but it's more beneath the surface in history as it rolls out into Genesis chapter 6, where this is what's said in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is three or four chapters after the fall, and this is the description of how it has impacted man internally, his thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. So the true damage is seen in the hearts of men and women. Likeness intact, heart spoiled, which leads us to our next point. First point is God's image distorted. Second point of what really it means by spiritual death is our souls corrupted. Our souls corrupted. Now again, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and let's think about what's happening here. Because Genesis 3 takes us to one of the two of the darkest moments in human history. Interesting that both of them involve a tree. In Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 3, you've got the tree of life in the middle of the garden. At Golgotha, you've got the tree of death upon which Christ hung suspended. 
fact, you could think about Revelation 22 where the tree of life makes an appearance that all of Scripture is in some way bookended by these trees. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see God creating everything. He creates it all good. He blesses the man. He places the man in the garden. And he says, go and enjoy it all. Enjoy yourself. Eat of any of the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one that I want to talk to you about. Don't eat from this tree because then you'll know good and evil. And what God was doing there is he was creating a test. A divine SAT, if you will. See, God creates, everything's good, but God says, okay, you just have one rule, just one thing. Not a big one, not a lot of rules, just this one thing I want you to keep in view. Don't touch that tree. And it was a test on whether Adam and Eve would choose to obey God from their heart despite the fact that in the garden was something that was placed that was going to attract their desires. See, that's what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired. So God fixes in the garden something they can't have because he wants to monitor what happens when man has a desire that remains unfulfilled, a desire that remains unsatisfied. Will they choose me or will they choose themselves? And we know the story. They failed. They believed that God had withheld something good from them, and so they sinned, and sin entered the world, and death through sin, and the world became a very broken place. Now, there's two questions in there that I want to explore with you. The first one is, why did Adam's sin affect my soul? Why did Adam's sin affect our souls? And then the second one is, what exactly does a corrupted soul really mean? So let's look at the first one first. First question, and actually in doing this, let's just go back to the Gospel Coalition article that says that the image is distorted and the blessing forfeited, and then it says, for himself and his progeny. Progeny. By the way, don't don't let words like that intimidate you or throw you off. Progeny just means offspring or descendants. So God has this test that is set before Adam, but what's really happening here is not only Adam is being tested, but all of mankind is being tested in Adam. See, the name Adam literally means man, mankind, literally means that. And so, as the first human being created in the garden, he isn't just one dude just alone by himself or one dude with his wife. He is there as the head of the entire human race. He is the representative head of all of us. In the same way as a U.S. ambassador would represent and speak for the government and speak for the whole nation of the United States, Adam is representing and speaking for all of humanity there. Which is why in Romans chapter 5 it says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam by the way, for by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
So the reason why Adam's sin affects our soul is because we were represented in him in the garden. His fall became our fall. His problem became our problem. His sin became our sin. Which then leads us to the next question of, what? okay, so we're corrupted. Our souls have been corrupted. What exactly does that mean? What does a corrupted soul really mean? Now, it certainly doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. Because we look around and we see things that are good in the world. And we see even people that are not Christians doing good things at times. So humanity certainly can't be as bad as we are. As bad as we could be, I should say. Which, by the way, is why many theologians don't prefer the term total depravity. Because man is not as depraved as they could possibly be. For those of you that are familiar with Reformed categories, the the acrostic tulip, the T in tulip is total depravity. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, total depravity. So what I want you to do is that I want you to think about this corrupted soul through three different ideas. Okay, think about it through alienation, suppression, and slavery. Alienation, suppression, and slavery. You know, speaking of acrostics, I was tempted to make an acrostic out of that. And I was pretty sure you would remember it. But I didn't want to be held accountable for it in the elders meeting at prayer on Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. and have to answer for it. So let's just speak of the words and not the first letters. The first word being alienation. Alienation. Now listen to this. One of the first effects of sin, as soon as it begins to play out in the man and the woman, is that their eyes are opened and they know something about themselves. They know that they are naked. And so they are clothed, they clothe themselves, and they hide from God. And so... The first point where sin begins to have an effect is in the relationship between God and man. Prior to that, God would walk through the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the woman would enjoy this unbroken fellowship with God, this harmony and this unity that they had with Him as they were with Him each and every day. But all of a sudden, they are alienated from God, and they're hiding from God. They feel ashamed before God. Their unhindered fellowship is broken with God. But the effects of that sin is not confined simply to God. It's not just a a, a vertical thing. There's also a horizontal thing going on in Genesis chapter 3, where they immediately clothe themselves. Well, that certainly relates to shame before God. But there's also a shame that they, they experience before one another where the differences that they had anatomically that were once a source of joy and unity and are all of a sudden, there's something about those differences where they've got to clothe them. Part of the way we see sin playing out in Genesis chapter 3 is that sin makes differences a problem. You know, before sin, they're naked, they're united, they're in the garden, they're, they're transparent with one another. 
But one of the things we're going to discover as we read the curse in Genesis chapter 3.15 is that all of a sudden into creation is introduced this idea of enmity. Enmity. It's, it's, it's a hatred. It's an alienation. It's a separation. It's, a, it's an angst. And part of what enmity does is enmity makes differences divisive. It makes where I'm different from you something that actually separates us. And I tend to, ta- I tend to exalt in where I'm distinct, and I tend to put you down for where you're different. And it plays out in creation in a number of different ways. It plays out in our roles, in our gender, in race. I mean, when that lunatic walks into the church this past week and kills nine people in the AME church up in Charleston, that's basically Genesis 3 playing out once again in a broken world. And we, because we see it through the alienation. So that's the first idea of a corrupted soul. We're alienated from God, alienated from one another. The second idea is in suppression. And in talking about this point, I want to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18, and then skip down to 21 through 23. This is what Romans 1 says. Listen carefully to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, so here, in Romans chapter 1, we discover another effect of the fall, another way that it coarsens and corrupts the soul. And that is that creation gets separated from the Creator. And when creation gets separated from the Creator, the way it works out in the human mind is that the creation gets elevated and idolized and worshipped. And it imposes this kind of futility upon us in the fall where we just can't think about these things straight. Where ultimately when the truth is present, we try to suppress the truth. We try to push it down. We try to keep it down. We try to avoid it, neglect it, deny it, not face it. And that leads to a confusion in our mind. It says that our thinking becomes futile. Our foolish hearts become darkened. We become fools. And we exchange something. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, there's something that begins to happen in creation where where the Creator gets displaced and that which is created becomes a really big deal to us. I mean, let's be honest. What else could explain the irrational infatuation that we have with animals? And, and, And I mean, this may be just a me thing. This may be just a Dave thing. But, you know, I just read an article this past week about a wealthy woman in Italy who left... $13 $13 million to her cat. And I'm, I'm reading this thinking, you know, I'm, I'm all for pets. 
I'm all for pets. In fact, total disclosure here, I have a cat. I disdain the cat. And and by the way, just if you have a cat, here's a little cat psychology for you. The only way to get a cat to like you is to disdain it because they have a disdain gene that moves immediately towards human beings. But when you disdain it, you kind of preempt it, and then they like you. So, So I disdain the cat. The only thing I want to leave that cat when I die is alone and penniless. <laughs> and and I, know, I know some of you are sitting there saying, oh, that, Dave, you're just, you're just kidding. You really love the cat. I hate the cat. I hate the cat. Here's my point. The world is a broken place. The world is a bro- broken place. You know, we love our pets. We hate our neighbors. We save whales. We abort babies. We're captivated by the creation, captivated by the creation. We ignore the creator. We suppress the truth of God and we replace it with just this infatuation that we have with one another, with that which is created. And so it's not just alienation. The corrupted soul involves a suppression of truth and an exchange where people become very important. Things become very important. Animals become very important. The environment becomes very important. None of those things are evil in and of themselves, but when they're elevated above God, they become idols. There is a suppression. And then finally, under the corrupted soul, there is a slavery. Slavery. Now, I realize that's, that's like a harsh word because most of us consider ourselves relatively free. And that's part of the reason that when we go into Scripture, it can be shocking to discover that Scripture defines us, apart from Jesus, as slaves. But the reality is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they plunged all of humanity into a bondage of sin. Not just a familiarity, but a bondage of sin, where we became spiritually imprisoned. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8, verse 34. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, I want you to think carefully about what he's saying there. Because he doesn't mean that we become sinners by committing sin. He's saying we sin because we're sinners. We sin because we are a slave to sin, it's not, like, it's not like sinning is this strange anomaly in my behaviors, this strange aberration to a normally holy life that I have each and every moment of the day apart from this time that I sin. Like you get angry and it's like, where did that come from? I'm, nor- I'm normally 100% of the, 99% of the time very peaceful person, but this anger just broke in in some unexpected way. Oh, when we sin, it simply reveals What's, what's already in our heart? What's already there? You know, if I have a handkerchief and I take the handkerchief and I plunge it into some water and I pick up the handkerchief and I squeeze it, water's going to come pouring out because there's water in the handkerchief and what's in the handkerchief comes out of the handkerchief. That original sin in Genesis chapter 3 plunged our hearts into depravity. And what happens each and every day is that our hearts get squeezed in the circumstances of 
the challenges, the problems, the conflicts, squeezes our hearts, and what is in our heart comes out of our heart. We sin because we're sinners. And see, that's very important because being born in sin, which is part of what that illustrates, means that we are enslaved to sin, which means that we're we're confined in what we can choose, that we can't choose beyond our desires. See, the, the issue as we think about you know, choosing God as a sinner, the issue is not that we're incapable of choice. The problem is that we choose according to our desires. That's how choices are made. So, in Adam, our desires for God we're not simply muted as a result of Genesis 3. It's not like our, 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 our choices for God were simply, you know, muted a little bit. Our choices were assassinated. Our, choice, our desires for God were totally assassinated. They were killed. They're dead. Which is why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And, and, and so our hearts are dead And dead hearts have no desires for God. There's no spiritual desires I have apart from God acting upon me towards God. It begins with the initiative of God. And in order to move towards God, ultimately we need a new heart that comes from God. The dead have no desires. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Psycho, and you know how it ends, and this is hardly a spoiler alert because this is like 50 years, this movie was made about 50 years ago. But one of the final scenes is where you discover that Norman Bates is living with his dead mother. And when he asks her her preferences, she can't respond, right? When he asks her her preference on things, what do you want to do? What is your choice? What is your desire? She can't respond. Why? She's dead. She's completely dead. He can talk to her all day. He can, he can, he can hook up a, a battery jumper cables to her. He can do any number of things, but she's dead. She's incapable of choosing. She's incapable of responding because she's dead. Original sin renders us utterly unable to choose God. It's one of the reasons why John MacArthur calls original sin utter inability. Because it renders us entirely unable to choose God. My point being, in the garden, we fell so far that we can't desire God. We can't desire God. We need something from outside of ourselves. We need a new heart with new desires that that want God and want the things of God. Which is what what leads us to the last point, God's love revealed. God's love revealed. So there's one last thing that springs up in this garden scene. It's a, it's a kind of a rose of promise that is tucked among the thorns of the curse. And we see it in chapter 3, verse 15, where God is speaking first to the serpent, first cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, now that's... That's not just talking about offspring in general, but that's talking about now a certain offspring of the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
There's a specific person that that's referring to there. He. In fact, in fact theologians call this, this passage the proto-evangelium. Evangel just means good news. Proto means first. So it's the first sighting of good news of the gospel in Scripture. The first sighting of the gospel in Scripture goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. It's almost as if this whole thing was planned. And so here we have the first glimpse of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it comes specifically in the form of a curse, but it's a curse that when you flip it over is also a promise. And see, that that connects directly to Article 4 of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith where it says, the only hope of all human beings is the undeserved love of this same God who alone can rescue us and restore us to himself. I don't know if this affects you the same way it affects me, but part of what I'm thinking when I read this is, you know, I mean, here we are even before we're out of the garden, just on the day sin takes place, and God is revealing his plan to love his people. God is revealing his plan to solve the problem of depravity, and it's happening in a manner that no one ever expected. It surprises everyone. It tells us about this individual who will be born. He will be born of a woman. He will be wounded because... The serpent will bruise his heel. He will be a bruised man. And he will be victorious because he and he alone will crush the head of the serpent. So we have this serpent, this enemy who says he's going to bruise his heel. So our champion who is coming right out of Genesis chapter 3, he would be bruised. He will conquer, but it's going to be a conquering through suffering, through having his heel bruised. He would be wounded for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And it's remarkable because we have this hidden key that unlocks how God is going to save us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where there's one who would come, the seed of the woman, and the serpent will bruise his heel, but he shall crush his head. He will crush his head. So not only is this seed going to be born of a woman, wounded by the serpent, but he's going to be victorious. Both the serpent and the seed are both wounded, but the serpent receives this fatal blow by the work of this one individual, he who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. And he's the same one that would give us the new heart, that would give us the new birth, that would come with a new heart, that would bring new desires for God. I I mean, we were in Ephesians chapter 2 earlier. Let's just read a little further in that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. In other words, He gives us this new birth with a new heart that has new desires. Do you see what's happening here? Because this is really remarkable stuff. I mean, tucked in the middle of this curse, tucked in the middle of the worst news in human history, tucked in the middle of this experience that was was utterly death-defying for Adam and Eve, is this little promise 
of God at work, of God being victorious. It's, it's like Jesus saying in John chapter 12, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto myself. If I'm crucified, the work of God begins. If I'm, if I'm crucified, if I'm crushed, then I will bring people in. And you know, what that does is that all the way back in early Genesis, it establishes a pattern that would play out in your life and in my life and the life of God's people where his greatest work would be found in some of our worst moments. Worst moment in human history right here, and yet right in the middle of it, we see the Savior. Right in the middle of it, we see, we flip over the curse and we see a promise. We see God working. We see God doing an amazing thing, promising that he would crush the work of the enemy, that he would crush the work of sin. And it's here we learn in the very beginning that his greatest work is found in our worst moments. That the cross is the ultimate wisdom of God for our failures. You know, there are, there are men here this morning that when they think of Father's Day, it does not elicit what we see on TV or what Hallmark puts forth of what this day is supposed to be because they live far more aware of the guilt that they feel and the shame that it incites because they feel like their failures, their deficiencies, their sins, their weaknesses are far more significant. And what I want you to know this morning is that because of, because of Genesis 3 and the promise in Genesis 3, there is one who came, the seed of the woman, who sympathizes with the shame that you feel. He sympathizes with that because we don't serve a, a generic Savior, but we serve a Savior who died naked, who died completely stripped in full view of everybody. And, and, and from an earthly standpoint, as he was dying, everybody around there thought he was an utter failure, that the work of God was done, that it had failed completely. And not only that, but he was, he was dying the death of a cursed man. You can't get any more shameful than that. And yet Scripture goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 4 that because he's our high priest, he sympathizes with us in our weakness. And that's really important for some of you guys this morning because, because shame speaks, man. I mean, it, it speaks loud. It speaks daily. It speaks in our ear. It whispers to us. But what Genesis 3 reminds us of is that even in those worst moments, the gospel speaks louder. There is always a promise that Christ Jesus took our shame. He took our failure. And that he no longer sees us. God no longer sees us through our worst moments, through those areas. You did, you did fail in many ways. Who, what, any father here that doesn't think he failed in some ways is a man out of touch with the reality of Genesis chapter 3. We're all in here. And yet God wants to liberate some of us from thinking about ourselves exclusively through verses 1 through 7. Because there is a 15 that we must stand on. There is a 15 that reminds us of the seed of the woman who came and crushed the work of the enemy and swallowed up the shame that we may feel. Because the cross is the ultimate wisdom of God for our failures. 
it reminds us that our failures are not the final word, that Jesus has the final word. You know, it's funny, on the night of the attack of Pearl Harbor, something else was going on across the waters in the UK, and that was in Churchill's office, because Churchill found out about Pearl Harbor being attacked, and he immediately turned and and said to someone, so we have won after all. I mean, here in the middle of this horrific aftermath of the worst day in U.S. history up to that point, after they had just been attacked on the very day, if you will, that war began, Churchill sees forward and he says, ah, the victory is at hand. Brothers and sisters, the most potent word from Genesis chapter 3, the most potent word from Article 4, the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith, is, not that, is that the bad news is not the final news. The bad news is not the final news, and boy, ha, is that good news. Let's pray.